0: You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you for joining us, and those of you who've been here for a very exciting afternoon. Thank you for still being here. Um, we are coming to the close of today's festival events, but uh, with absolute delight, I'm going to introduce my colleague Andrew Murphy, who is the 1867 chair of English in the School of English, uh, who is Ireland's greatest expert on Shakespeare. And many of you have seen earlier this year, it was this year, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Earlier this year, uh, Andy led the the celebrations and the scholarship on Shakespeare's first Folio and its 400 years. Uh, But he also writes on other topics, he's an expert in the history of reading, on uh, uh, the literature of Naturalist Ireland, uh, and has just edited a book on Britishness, which you can, well, it's not on Brit. the literature of Britain, yes which you can see downstairs on the publications poster uh, as you're going out. Uh, but today, he turns his Shakespeare skills to the story of fascists at the gate, Coriolanus in Irish, and...
1: Thanks very much, Eve. (coughs) I've been warned not to wander too far away from the microphone, (laughs) which is recording me, Uh, so I will try very hard uh, not to do that. Uh, Thanks for that introduction, Eve, and thanks for the kind uh, invitation to come and speak at this really wonderful festival. I was looking at the festival brochure this morning, and looking at the cover of it, I noticed that the cover says, was Shakespeare Irish? So if you've come here expecting <laughs> that I'm going to tell you that Shakespeare wasn't born in stratford naven but actually he was a native of the Blasket Islands and a distant <laughs> relative of Beg's, Sayers, so uh, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Uh, so if that's enough information for you already, feel free to walk out at this point uh, if, you, if you like. Uh, so I'm not going to be talking about the biographical Shakespeare. I'm going to be talking about the uses to which Shakespeare has been put uh, in Ireland, and particularly the um, political uses to which his work has been put. So the session is going to fall into two parts. So the first long bit of it is going to be me talking about Uh, As Eve just said, they're a translation of Shakespeare, of a Shakespeare play, into Irish. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. And I should offer an apology at this point. If there is anybody in the audience who is... (coughs) Sorry. Excuse excuse me. If there's anybody in the audience who is a fluent or even native speaker of Irish... I will be reading a couple of short extracts in Irish, and I beg you your forgiveness if you're a fluent speaker, <coughs> for the mangling of the language that I'm going to do uh, at that point, and also for my amateurish uh, translations.
0: So the first long
1: bit, as I say, will be about this translation and the history of it. And then in the final little section, I want to talk about uh, a problem that I encountered in trying to untie the final bit of this particular story. Uh, And I want to talk about the slightly surprising place that I came out to at the point where I untied the final little bit uh, of the thing. So when when even I were back and forth a little bit about uh, my doing something for this, I thought this might be a useful thing to do. Because I think when, as academics, when we give papers, we always speak with great authority and we try to project the idea that we really know what we're talking about and we've got it all worked out. And I thought, in the context of a research f- the festival, it might actually be useful to talk a little bit about coming to a slight stumbling block and then the surprise of discovering something uh, that you weren't uh, a- anticipating. Uh, so that's basically what I'm going to be that's the shape of what I'm going to be saying. So one interest that I have at the moment is in the political Shakespeare in Ireland So the way in which Shakespeare was received politically has been received politically uh, over the centuries the thing that's always struck me is the extent to which, uh, the leaders of Irish nationalism over the centuries have all, almost all, had a very strong interest uh, in Shakespeare. So you go back to Wolf Tone. You come up through Michael Davitt. You get to James Connolly, uh, Thomas McDonough. They all were avid readers of Shakespeare, uh, and they all had things to say about Shakespeare. But a great, outstanding example of this is Patrick Pierce himself. So if you go out to St. Vendors, down in Rathfarnham to the Pierce Museum, they have recreated Pierce's study down there. And one of the things that you will see there is a bust of Shakespeare that we know uh, uh, Pierce owned, and we know was part of, was in his study, uh, in its uh, original configuration. And we have a very interesting quote about um, about Pierce and Shakespeare from Desmond Ryan. Some people may know Desmond Ryan. Uh, he wrote a memoir uh, about 1916 and wrote many other things. So Ryan was a pupil at St. Enda, so he was taught by Pierce. Uh, and as a very young man, uh, he fought side by side with Peirce uh, in the GPO. So in his memoir of that period, uh, Ryan says of Pierce, he loved his books, including his many editions of Shakespeare, all of which he had watched in the booksellers' windows, nobly renounced, entered, fingered, steeled himself, fled whole streets away, lingered, wavered, turned back, and purchased, radiant and ashamed until he saw the next. It's a very weird description book (laughs) by, right? But it gives you a sense of the extent to which Pierce was obsessed, really, uh, with Shakespeare. So uh, Pierce performed Shakespeare in his own home growing up with his siblings. And he had his pupils perform Shakespeare at St. Enders. And one of the things that's always struck me is the fact that though Pierce was a great advocate of the Irish language, I'm sure people will know he was the editor of Clive Solich, for example, uh, and wrote in Irish as well as in English. Uh, And so he was a great lover of the Irish language, and he was a great lover of Shakespeare. But it never seemed to occur to Pierce to put those two things together. As far as I can tell, the Shakespeare performances at St. Anders, given by his pupils, were all performed in English. So it never occurred to him to make a translation Uh, into Irish. But we do have another Irish nationalist figure from the same period who did translate Shakespeare into Irish, uh, Translated Coriolanus uh, for the stage. The translator in question was Liam O'Brien. I don't know if anybody knows much about O'Brien, but he's an absolutely fascinating figure. Uh, He was born in Dublin. In 1888, and he talks about uh, the fact that when he was a child, when he was at school, he was one of 30,000 school children uh, who were marched out to Clonturk Park by Maud Gon to take part in a nationalist demonstration there. So I think when they got to Clonturk Park, I mean, they were getting jelly and ice cream sign patriotic songs, uh, or whatever. Uh, He studied modern languages at what's now UCD. And in 1911, he gained a scholarship to do advanced study on the continent. So he went to Bonn, Berlin, and Freiburg. And he came back to Dublin in 1914. Uh, Maud Gunn's ice cream and jelly obviously had an impact on him because he joined the Irish volunteers in 1914 uh, when he came back. Uh, and he took part in 1916 uprising. So in the confusion of the beginning of the uprising, he was unable to make his way to his own particular group of volunteers. Uh, so he ended up joining in with the Irish Citizen Army, uh, who, of course, took over Stevens Green and then had to retreat back to the College of Surgeons, because taking over Stevens Green was Stupid idea in fairness. <laughs> uh, after the war, he was uh, sorry, after 1916, he was uh, imprisoned for a spell at Wandsworth, and then, like a lot of the volunteers, he ended up at Fronger uh, uh, um, internment camp uh, before returning to Ireland. When he came back to Ireland, he took up a post teaching modern languages at UCG. And he remained there, then, for his entire professional career. So he worked at UCG for about 41 years. He had a strong interest in drama. Uh, From at least 1926 onwards, he was involved both in translating plays into Irish to be staged in Galway, and he also did some uh, acting uh, himself uh, in the city. In 1928, he was one of the founders of Antigua, the Irish language theater in Galway. So he co-founded it with a number of people, including the home of Liamor and Hilton Edwards. So Leomar and Edwards had come to Galway with the annual McMaster touring theater company. Uh, and McMaster, of course, put on lots of Shakespeare uh, around the country. Uh, O'Brien links up with them. Explains the idea of founding Irish language theatre. MacLeomore, in particular, is very interested, and so they get uh, on Tyve York, uh, they get on Tyve off the ground. One of the stories that O'Brien tells about on Tyve is that early uh, in the period of the theatres being up and running. Uh, he went to Orson Welles he went to see Orson Welles during Orson Welles brief but formative period of acting here in Ireland and he offered Orson Welles four pounds a week if Welles would learn Irish and would become a permanent member of the Tyve York Company Welles declined the offer of four pounds a week even though O'Brien had said to him that he would pay for him to spend six months living with a family on the ground so that he could become uh, fluent uh, in Irish uh, in, quick, uh, in quick order. So O'Brien translated a lot of stuff for uh, on Taibierk, including uh, plays by Singh, Augusta Gregory, Patrick Pierce, and European dramatists such as uh, Malia Later in his career, he also made a translation of Waiting for Godot as for Godot, <laughs> uh, and that was staged by Cyril Cusack at the Pike Theatre in Dublin before being brought back to Untied York later on uh, by Alan Simpson. Among the texts that um, O'Brien translated for Untied York. Uh, was a short French comedy uh, titled Encore, written by a French dramatist called Henri Guillaume. Uh, Encore was actually a highly condensed farcical version of The Taming of the Shrew. So it's possible that making this short sort of Shakespeare adjacent translation, so to speak, uh, may have given Ogrian the idea that he might do a full-scale Shakespeare play. One way or another, by 1936, uh, a Tyve York production of Coriolanus in Irish, translated by O'Brien, uh, is being talked about. Though it's not actually until April 1938 that rehearsals get underway. And then the play is staged uh, on Tyve York in the following month so it runs over the course of about a week in may 1938. Now the text the translation of the text was finally published in 1945 uh, so it's staged in 38 it's published in 45 and i think the explanation for that gap of seven years uh, is probably very simple it was a massive paper shortage during the course of the second world war uh, paper was rationed and printing was very highly restricted, so I think uh, O'Brien translates the play uh, for performance in '38, uh, and then it doesn't get get published until uh, until '45. O'Brien adds uh, a little foreword to the published text, and in the foreword he explains that what he has aimed for in making the translation is essentially a workman-like rendering of the play into Irish prose. Uh, so here is where you need to block your ears if you're a fluent <coughs> Arab speaking. So he says, Near and Are an oiled At all in a de Verse Shakespeare A horde love I made no effort To carry across the poetic beauty of Shakespeare in his translation. Um, We can see what he means by this if we take just a short representative little passage from Shakespeare's original, and then look at what happens to it in the translation. Uh, So Shakespeare's text inevitably is highly compressed, inventive, and highly uh, uh, rhythmical in its poetry. Uh, So if I just read that for a start, Old tongues speak of him, and the bleared sight's are spectacle to see him. Your prattling nurse, into a rapture, lets her baby cry, while she chats him. The kitchen Malkin pins her richest locker room about her riching neck, her reaching neck, clambering the walls to eye him. So you can get all that kind of meaty compression uh, poetic language there. Uh, and so here's a O'Brien's prose translation in Irish. Nili meo gach Och ach Coriolanus, agus taach ag iri a echol. An tein o'c feider leis taada echol, torse A ciannapt speck lari. An calline o'il prashti, at le tuartamach ar siulodake, ligin si goiv a griha a fleisga, le quinnakon, fadus a tarsisa Riddyn on chollid ainshara Os an, an geishthig, ta raeishti brat-brad achar teinco amwineu le nocfecfi on saalacher, agus sin i a drabedoart an the bali chan bratnu urchchariu er leinus. So for any you who's forgotten their school <laughs> Irish, uh, I'll do the slightly mad thing now of translating <laughs> the translation back into English to give you as a a flavor of it. Uh, So uh, there is nothing in anyone's mouth but Coriolanus. And everyone is trying to see him. He who is sightless is buying spectacles. The girl who has children to take out for a walk lets them burst their hearts with crying while she tells tales of him. The servant girl runs out of the kitchen after putting a neckerchief around to hide the dirt. And there she is, climbing the walls to look on Coriolanus. So you you can get the sense there that everything that's in Shakespeare is in O'Brien's translation. But inevitably, it's a lot more more prosaic. So he offers, we can say, a solidly faithful rendering of the text, but the poetry and force of the original is inevitably lost uh, in in, in the process. Now, thinking about Coriolanus uh, itself, uh, somebody asked me on Twitter just yesterday, why Coriolanus of all plays? Uh, But Coriolanus was, of course, a play that very much resonated specifically with the politics of the 1930s. And it's a play that people come back to again and again in the 30s and indeed into the 40s, including in this country, So the Cork Shakespearean Society presented Coriolanus at the Opera House in Cork in 1932. And in the same year, my predecessor as professor of English at Trinity, the wonderfully named Wilbraham Fitzjohn Trench, arranged a reading of the play, a public reading of the play, in conjunction with the British Empire Shakespeare Society, who still called the British Empire Shakespeare Society, in 1932 they subsequently changed their name. Two years later, 1934, the Belfast branch of the British Empire Shakespeare Society also does a public reading of the play, and two years later again in 1936, the Abbey mounted a full-scale. Production uh, of the play. Uh, So their uh, expectation was that they would have gotten a new McMaster to come into the Abbey and take the part of Coriolanus. But contract negotiations with McMaster broke down, and so an actor called Reginald Jarman took the part instead. Uh, The Abbey production was successful and popular, uh, but the actor playing Ophidius slipped on ice outside the abbey uh, and broke his leg. And he couldn't go on. So the, the production was terminated um, earlier than expected. So in producing a translation of the play for Untidy the O'Brien was very much in tune with the spirit of the time, the loads of interest uh, in the play and he registered the play's contemporary relevance in his foreword to the to his text to the published text writing of the play as drama onra marabli shakespeare oscor or su kash atal khobio oscor inu, in you the venoming fan isha and kesht, either at montdale locus august jack tort, It's a wonderful drama in which Shakespeare debates before our eyes a question that is as live and as potent today as it was in his own time. That is the question of the conflict between democracy and dictatorship. So Irene is very well aware of the kind of discussions that are going on around the play. Contemporary reviews of the production picked up on this element of it. uh, political element of it. So it was reviewed at the column Sentinel. And the review was headed boldly, was Shakespeare a fascist? And the review notes that according to some present-day critics, Shakespeare in this play presents the problem of fascism versus democracy. As usual, some draw the conclusion that he shows them to be a fascist, others that it proves him to be a democrat. So whatever about Shakespeare's Shakespeare's politics, the reviewer also presciently notes, who knows, but the story of Coriolanus might be repeated uh, sorry, might be repeated yet in Europe in a not far distant future. This being written in nineteen thirty eight. A review in the Irish press carried the subhead, Galway's challenging production of Coriolanus, noting that it took courage on the part of the capital of the Gaeltacht to make the native Gaelic speak out of none other than William Shakespeare. The reviewer observes that the Galwegians gave us in their intense parts a Coriolanus that was a mixture of Hitler and Mussolini. And the stage of the theater was a battleground for all the world's peoples, tumulting in the age-old struggle, democracy versus the rest. The contemporary parallels were further emphasized elsewhere in that review in the press. Just another short quote from that review. The sword-flashing crowds of old Rome were the gas-masked goose-steppers of today's Europe the plebs that challenged the patrician Coriolanus were the humble democratic millions who will rise tomorrow. So O'Brien's translation then was a critical success. Uh, and it was popular uh, as a play uh, at the time of the Arctic, at the time. And it resonated with the politics at the time. Antibiot would return to Shakespeare again at the end of the war, uh, when Vera Jennings, who seems to have been uh, a student of O'Briens at UCG, uh, translated Twelfth Night uh, for a production uh, at the theater. By contrast with O'Briens' translation of Cariolanus, um, Jennings' translation uh, of Twelfth Night has not been published. So it has not, to the best of my knowledge, uh, survived. It's a kind of t- an interesting example of a woman doing work in relation to Shakespeare, where it's very hard for us to kind of find out much information uh, about her. Uh, I think she went on to be a school schoolteacher. It's, it's very hard to say. Um, but interesting to think uh, that had two plays of Shakespeare's translated into Irish, uh, and that one of them had a female translator. So in working on uh, the Aurean text, I registered that it had uh, an afterlife in nineteen forty two. So staged in thirty uh, eight. in July nineteen forty two it turns up in the Radio and schedule advertised as Coriolyn's Garlagen Greg Liam O'Brien or Grandma Shakespeare. So as the description indicates this is a highly condensed version of the play so it's an hour-long program uh, with o'brien's text edited down uh, to make it shorter and suitable for radio performance and uh, in that uh, radio performance we hold played the part of cariolanus But I also discovered that the radio performance of the translation wasn't the only production that was staged in 1942. So when I was trying to find out about the Tyviark production, uh, I wrote to Barry uh, at the University of Galway. Uh, And anybody who has ever had any contact with Barry will know how amazingly helpful uh, he is so barry chased out uh the uh tyviak uh program for me but in the process of looking for it he discovered a second program for the uh O'Brien translation and this was a program for a production stage at the gate in 1942. uh so it's not terribly surprising that uh, Coriolanus, that O'Brien's Coriolanus made its way from Antivyach to the Gate because Mapleamore, once he moved to the Gate, continued to have a very strong interest in Irish language uh, drama. Uh, Mapleamore, of course, is a fascinating figure, an inventive figure <laughs> in himself, uh, uh, but he learned Irish and became fluent in Irish in order to create himself uh, as an Irish figure. So lots of things turn up uh, at the gate. Lots of Irish language stuff turns up uh, at the gate, uh, partly because of MacLean Moore's um, sponsorship of that kind of work. The gate production did not feature MacLean So MacLean Moore plays the part of Coriolanus in the radio production. But he does not appear in the gate production, because the gate production is put on by an amateur uh, theater group. And indeed, the review of the production in the Irish press observes char- sharply that a play like Coriolanus should be left to more experienced actors. For young players, it is meat too strong. enthusiasm. While it is always to be encouraged, should not carry away young amateurs in their choice of plays. The Simple and the easily portrayed should be the earliest uh, considerations. The, so the reviewer in the Irish Press doesn't like the Gate uh, production because he feels that this group of amateurs have overextended themselves in taking on so substantial a play. Well, the program for the Gate performance tells us that the group who staged it uh, were called Ashtori Nahash Arha, the actors of the Resurrection. And this is where I kind of arrived at a stumbling block uh, with the work that I was doing on the translation. Because try as I might, I could not find anything out about Ashtori Nahash Arha, So I kept doing searches on them. Uh, and coming up uh, empty-handed. But I did eventually uh, discover that they had uh, they had staged another production at the gate in the previous years. So in 1941, they had put on a play called Cable and 100 years old, a translation of a play originally written in Spanish. Uh, that play was reviewed by the same reviewer who the next year would review Coriolanus. And he wasn't or she wasn't any more impressed by Cade <laughs> Glen than by Coriolanus. Uh, this time writing in Irish, Ni erin on Drama Show de This drama is not suited to amateurs. Finding that production, uh, that 1941 production, led me to the discovery that Ashtori Nahashara were a subgroup of a thing called Craved Nahashara, so the branch uh, of the Resurrection. Uh, and crave Nahashara was a branch of Conrad Aquila. So. Um, I found that connection back to a much larger organization. But though they fell under the umbrella of Conrad Aguiliga, the Arctic group were highly active in their, own, uh, in their own right. So once you discover how to find them, uh, and you start doing searches on craig and the Ash-Archic, suddenly they start popping up all over the place. So they were a branch of Conrad Aguiliga, but they also set up their own branch network which spread throughout the country. And in fact, they even had a branch in Glasgow. Uh, So they became, in their own right, quite a big organization. Uh, They offered free Irish classes at their headquarters building at 27 South Frederick Street, which is just about across the road from Dunham-Crescensis, so very close to where we are. And they even commissioned a short film about themselves uh, which was produced by Liam O'Leary. Uh, I don't know very much about the history of Irish film, but I gather Liam O'Leary is quite a, a major figure. And the Irish Times reported that the film about Ashara had been widely shown and greatly uh, appreciated. Uh, sorry, greatly appreciated. Um, now, some months before Coriolanus was put on the stage at the gate by this group, uh, Their kind of a crave Nahash, Nahash group fell out pretty comprehensively with Conor and so broke away as a kind of Irish language splinter group uh, from Conor They also announced at the time that not only were they breaking away, but they were setting up uh, a determinedly an explicitly political organization. Uh, So if you know Guleva, you'll know that, at least on paper, it was a non-political organization. In theory, it was a non-political organization. And this group, this new group, styled itself Altiri tiri so the architects of the Resurrection. So we go from the actors of the Resurrection, the branch of the Resurrection, Uh, We now have uh, the architects of the the Resurrection. And investigating the Altiri group, uh, and I'm really just in the kind of very early preliminary stages of doing this, uh, has led me into what I have to say is very murky and unexpected territory uh, indeed. So Altiri and Ahasar uh, were led by a guy called Garud Quenagon, who believed that Ireland would be far better off if we abandoned democracy completely and we shifted to being a one-party state. And in shifting to be a one-party state, he believed that we should have a leader in this country uh, who had absolute power. So as this might suggest, O'Quinnagon and many of those around him were sympathetic to elements, at least, of the fascist program, programs of Mussolini and Hitler. But they wanted to bring into place a specifically Irish version of that kind of program. So in a pamphlet entitled Ashara for the Worker, they proposed, we seek national independence, a free 32-county Ireland in our day, we seek the restoration of our national language and culture as the basis of our national morale. Over, above all, we are determined to build up—sorry—to uh, build upon the clean Christian foundation of a free and Gaelic Ireland, a dynamically Christian state that, in the perfection of its social and economic systems, will be a model and inspiration for the modern world. So, in essence, the LTR group imagined a kind of far right program for Ireland that would combine political and cultural nationalism, on the one hand, underpinned uh, by a deeply conservative understanding of Christianity. And by Christianity, for the most part, they really meant Catholicism. So the idea is to bring together uh, Irish cultural and political nationalism with Catholicism to create this new form of politics, which would be a kind of beacon of light uh, within the world and that other uh, nations uh, would want to to follow. So the original Galway production of O'Brien's translation of Coriolanus was seen as resonating with the struggle between democracy and dictatorship in Europe, with, as we've seen, the Irish press reviewer imagined it as being about the humble democratic millions, challenging the patrician Coriolanus. So that was the way in which uh, the art production was read at the time. The Ashira group, by contrast, presumably saw the play in a completely different light. I imagine, as a story of a great leader who is brought to destruction. By a combination of an ignorant plebs misled by their tribunes, so a kind of form of communism, I suppose, and a corrupt elite manipulating the, the levers of what we would now call the deep state. So an instance we might say of the insolent, insolent going unreproved and a beating down of the wise, to quote somebody else who took more than a passing interest in fascism at the time. This is not at all what I imagined, uh, where I imagined I was going to end up when I first started looking at O'Brien's translation uh, of Coriolanus. Uh, I thought I was telling a fairly straightforward nationalist story in a way. So we take this guy who was an Irish nationalist, a well-educated Irish nationalist, participates in 1916. Uh, becomes the university professor, translates stuff, uh, translates Coriolanus. Coriolanus r- resonate, resonates in a kind of positive way with politics the uh, time. So I wasn't expecting to, to end up here. But it does go to show, I think, how endlessly adaptable Shakespeare has been in an Irish political context. So to conclude, in the 18th century, Shakespeare was part of the cultural formation of the colonial community in Ireland in various ways, through Smock Alley and various other things. From the 19th century into the early decades of the 20th century, he was a central cultural figure, figure from many of the leaders of the Irish Nationalist movement. And here, in the mid-century, we find him surprisingly being corrupted by the Irish far-right. Thank you.